All right. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is The Colin McEnroe Show. Thank you for joining us today. We have a terrific weekly cultural roundtable. It's The Nose. Nobody knows why it's called The Nose. And we're going to have a little contest later on to, uh, to see if you can guess why. That's, while Colin's out of the country, we're going to – while he's away, we're going to play. Uh, I'm Mark Oppenheimer. This is The Nose. I'm joined this week for this weekly cultural roundtable uh, by Brian Slattery, arts editor of the New Haven Independent, which is online at newhavenindependent.org. Sophronia Scott, a novelist, essayist, and faculty member for Regis University's Mile High MFA in Writing. Welcome, Sophronia. Thank you, Mark. And legendary radio personality and New Haven resident, Bruce Barber. Thank you. Gentlemen, gentle lady. Uh, it's been an interesting week in the culture, and I'd love to start off and talk about uh, – we're going to talk about, about fraternity behavior. Uh, before I do, let me say that we, we're going to welcome callers today. We always welcome callers, but today's a day when I don't think any of us here was in a fraternity. Bruce? Oh, Bruce was in a fraternity. So I was president of my fraternity. Was it SAE? It was, it, was, it was not SAE. It was not at the University of Oklahoma. No. But some of you out there in Radioland were in Greek letter organizations, and your calls are going to be especially important uh, in, this, in this first segment. You can call us today at 203-776-9677. That's 203-776-9677. We're in the New Haven studio today, so that's a different phone number. You can also tweet us at WNPR Colin. Uh, so – the University of Oklahoma, we all saw the racist chants captured by somebody who's probably been thrown out of the people who were already thrown out of the frat, right? Like they were expelled from University of Oklahoma. The guy who actually captured it and posted it online. <laughs> it's some of the most – I mean it's like one of the most cringeworthy things I think I've seen in How, would, recent Would memory. someone paraphrase for me without – I am not going to paraphrase. You're not so. – <laughs> So the worst word you can think of for African-Americans was folded into a chant that also included the worst thing you can do to African-Americans in American history. So it was about lynching people and it was on a party bus and it was chanted by white dudes in black tie. So this is the – this is like some – this is like some script, right? Uh, yeah, it was at, sort of fulfilling – it was fulfilling like your worst stereotype of, was, of frat boys. Of, I mean, there it was. It was your like worst stereotype of Southerners, of men, of college kids, yeah. and of frat boys all rolled into one. And the question I came away with, um, you know, and this this says something about my own biases. As I was, I was not a Greek letter organization member. You know, my first reaction was, well, this is what you get when you create institutions, the main purpose of which seems to be to drink and and party and exclude people. Right? You make people petition to get in to have the right to drink with a bunch of other guys. And yeah, how could that end well, right? And it seemed to me a problem endemic to to Greek culture on campuses. Um, and I then – I posted that on Facebook and I got all <laughs> sorts of – you know, just like the the hostility that came in from people for whom fraternities and sororities were like the, the, the most meaningful experience was the things that turned them into what they are. So, you know, I guess what – you know, my question is what are we to make of this? Is this simply – is this just – the dark side of American culture and indeed human nature, which is that people can be very bad and people in groups can be even worse? Um, or is there something about the structures that these people are inhabiting, four-year colleges, uh, fraternities, that sort of thing, that amplifies it and that we could we could tweak? We can't tweak out of existence the dark side of human nature, but is there something in these structures that, that could, I don't know, that could 
that could be could be masters. We're going to go to the senior member of our panel Bruce, <laughs> Bruce, and the only Greek letter uh, alumnus, Bruce Barber. For well, let me let me say I did a lot of stupid things in college. In you know my role as president of my fraternity, but you know. What was I'd, the stupid? Like could we stop there and say what was the stupidest? There, well, I'll I'll tell you exactly what it was, and actually, it's been replicated in Boston this very winter. But uh, we we lived in a house on a lake <laughs> up in Geneva, New York, and uh, there was a balcony to a, and it was a good fifteen foot drop down to the lower level. And it snowed so much in upstate New York that we found out we could oh, jump no. off into the snow <laughs> and land safely. <laughs> And it was all going so well until uh, Hal Berry hit a buried keg um, (laughs) with a clank. Um, But I, you know, so a couple things. Number one, when, so my fraternity was shut down for a while and I was kind of working to try to get it reopened, which it, which it was. And, but in those conversations, I said, I would not send, I would not want to put my son in a fraternity like the one I joined. And so I do think, you know, you know, at whatever level, you've got to look at that just as an organization or just as an entity that is part of college. And I think you've got to just ask some questions, you know, that haven't been asked in a long time. Okay. Wait, I want to know what kind of questions. You know, I think it's – I think one of the big ones is to what extent does the – college have oversight over the fraternity and i think what i noticed was a problem in in our case was that we were kind of on our own we were you know we we paid housing to the fraternity same thing with meals um and we were free to do pretty much anything we pleased because we weren't you know in a dorm and i think you need to find ways to have better oversight and you saw this fraternity in question was closed down immediately um, and thrown off campus. You know, get your stuff, get out, and you're done. Okay, but you say better oversight. I mean, what that tends to mean is that it becomes more and more woven into the fabric of the university, right? It becomes essentially part... I mean, more oversight is also you become essentially a dorm of the university. That's right. That's what's happened to my old fraternity house. It's now a dorm... But, so I mean, the, the, now that the the um, undergrads now are in dorm rooms, basically, so security can go in and look around, and you know, I mean, I guess there are two sides to the whole. You know, do you keep them close or push them away? I mean, some people think that the 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 thing to do to fix this problem is you kick them off campus. You're saying bring them more on campus. I definitely, <laughs> I de- because look at you know what you're dealing with here is. 19 year olds, twenty year olds, first time away from See? home. Drinking, and you're. I just. I would say you're going to get the good and the bad. You're going to the, the good and the bad is going to come from that. And for me, some of my closest relationships, some of my lifelong friendships, were formed in you know in that fraternity in the four years that I was there. And yet, you said also that recently a kid jumped off a balcony into the <laughs> snow, and that happened to you, however many years ago, and it's still happening today. So there's something wrong with the fact that uh, if the oversight is there, then uh, what's going on, that the same behavior is happening over and over again. I'm not sure it's just fraternities. I think, you know, are we talking about college behavior in general? 
you know, and, and I, so you're exactly right. And let me take it maybe a step further. And I think with all of these, you know, individuals, you've got to ask, what is the, what's the family structure that these young people are coming from? What kind of values have been imparted on them? And, and I, I think that's going to come out, you know, good and bad. I mean, part of it, like what you were saying, having have more oversight is, uh, you know, like the college I went to, um, had abolished fraternities in the 60s. And you still saw the same stuff that you totally associate with fraternities. It was just organized in a different way. Like if it's not fraternities, it's sports teams. If it's not sports teams, it's a club of some kind or another. It doesn't, you know, I, I, I think that you know, the, the, the fraternity or the sports team, whatever, is sort of a vessel for something else. And um, man, I wish I knew what that was. You know, I mean, I, I, had, the, I had to sort of, you know, when I was watching the video, I had the reaction of like, how did it, how did it get to this? Well, you know, it, how did it get to this where this was okay? You know, where like 20 people were chanting on the bus, that thing. Yeah. You know, you go like, wow, everybody thought that was okay, huh? That's, or how about that thing at you know, Yale, right? A, a couple of years ago? Which thing? <laughs> There's a bad chanting. The bad chanting. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, we, we need some, some people who have, who have been chanting on buses to call in and talk about what they were thinking back then. Our number is 203-776-9677. That's 776-WNPR. This is The Nose, Colin McEnroe's weekly cultural roundtable. I'm Mark Oppenheimer sitting in Colin's air chair, except I'm actually sitting in Faith's air chair because we're coming to you from New Haven today. <laughs> I'm joined by Sophronia Scott, Brian Slattery, and Bruce Barber. To me, one of the really interesting questions is why – when did 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds – become so juvenile. Now, I'm not saying there's any better in the mid-90s when I was in college, but it occurs to me these are people who can be drafted. They can go kill. They can vote. And in the olden days, this was an age at which you got married. And we're in a place in American culture where you're given these four years, if you're fortunate enough to go away to a residential college, right? We have to remember most college students are, are commuters. They're later in life students. They don't have these kind of resources. But if you live this kind of typical, what we think of as a typical college experience at a residential school, in dorms, fraternities, the whole animal house thing, you're essentially go, told, go be an idiot for four years and we'll insulate you from the consequences. Why don't we have a model where we say – you can move to this town, get an apartment, and register for classes. In other words, why, why don't we ask people to be grown-ups, find housing, live on their own, and then take classes rather than giving them this bubble of school-supervised extracurriculars, school-supervised housing, and, and you know, school-superintended stupidity? I mean, is that, is that a good model? Well, and also we're assuming that it's only for these four years that you can behave this – in this stupid manner for four years, and then, oh, it's all over. You'll, you've grown out of it. And, and I just don't understand why we think that someone who behaved this way, saying, chanting such things on a bus, is not going to behave uh, in a very different way with different words, but behave the same way yeah. when they're out in the adult world. And that's the scary thing to me, that, that somehow it's this naive notion that, that this behavior is locked into this very safe space when it's not locked in and it's not safe. Although I do have to say that I was a major binge drinker in college, and the day I graduated, <laughs> I, I stopped. I mean, I, you know, when you read these reports about how you know kids these days are such binge drinkers, and we have this, we have this coming tide of alcoholics. I think 
everyone I knew in college was a no, binge drinker, you know, you, and none of us is now. We you, all we you're graduated. You're so right. I was the same way, and so a lot of this stupid behavior was like it was kind of like that's what you do in college. You know, right. you I mean, have but, but there's fun. a difference. There's a difference between the stupid behavior that it sounds yes. like we all did, and you know, even even in college, I remember having this. You idea. were a binge fiddler, Brian. You used I, to stay I was. You fiddled. I was forty-eight I was. hours. I drank hours and fiddled and drank and fiddled <laughs> like you're supposed to. But the I mean, but even in college, I remember having that feeling of like, well, I'm doing a lot of those stupid things, but it has never occurred to me to do right. this other crazy thing. You know, like I did plenty yeah. of I did plenty of, you know, pretty self destructive things, but they were definitely self destructive. Right. <laughs> you know, that's right. right. <laughs> Let's move on to the question of how the University of Oklahoma should have handled it. I think if I, I may not be up on the latest, you know, on the last hour's news, my recollection was the couple students who were identified, the couple men who were identified as ringleaders were going to be expelled, according to the president of the university, David Warren. And um uh there has been some pushback from people saying, well, they were off campus on a bus that this private organization chartered, ch- chanting horrible things. But, you know, this is a public school. They, this is a government-run institution, and the government actually can't tell us not to say those things, that actually it is our constitutional right to speak idiotic, offensive, racist things if we so choose. Um, do we think that the university should be stepping in here to, to, to supervise that? It's you have the right to say such things, but you don't have the right uh, to a college education. You know, except it's a state school. Legally speaking, it's a state school, and they can't. You can't, for example, you can't be fired from a government job if, on your off hours, you say horrible, terrible, awful things. Well, let me ask you this: Our college is doing a good enough job of saying, you know, legal issues aside, here's what we will and will not tolerate. Exactly. You know, I mean, and and making that very clear and. You know, I think a lot of this, you know, it comes down to, I think, in, in the case of sometimes fraternities, there's a lot of money involved. And, and colleges are not willing to say, we will not tolerate certain behaviors. You're gone because you're charging people ridiculous sums <laughs> of money to go to these schools now. And they won't do it. If you said anybody who's just mildly, you know, uh, if there's any hint of this foul behavior, you're out. Number one, you drain a lot of these schools of a lot of money, I think, and it's unfortunate. Oh, so then where is the line? I'm actually curious as to uh, the parents of the boys who did get expelled. You know, how do you go home and tell mom and dad, well, this is what happened to me? Right, What is the reaction that they get? We have a call coming in from Mercy. Mercy, are you there? I am. I can't hear you guys very well, though, right now. Um, Well, you better turn your radio up. uh, I'm (laughs) Just, just kidding. Uh, Mercy, uh, what do you have to tell us? So I, I'm actually in a sorority. Um, I graduated from Quinnipiac, but right now I'm in a graduate chapter in the community. It's actually a historically black sorority. And one thing that I wanted to say is that, um, you know, besides instances like this, across the nation, sororities and fraternities can be accredited for uh, donating millions to charities. Um, Bruce Barber, you can attest to that, I'm certain. Even though we might spend our weekends doing what have you, um, it's sort of like a work hard, play hard kind of atmosphere. And situations like this and situations um, like, for instance, uh, Talcap Epsilon at Quinnipiac University being uh, suspended from campus for a hazing incident, these are incidents of um, that, that happen because of diffusion of responsibility. Teenagers and uh, young, young adults who have you know little to lose and 
aren't really thinking about what they want to do for the rest of their life, get together and uh, an idea may spring. And from a, a community of diffusion of responsibility, you these awful things might happen where, where you know, in hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have done that. In hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have jumped off the roof into the snow. But <laughs> into the keg. Doing it, and <laughs> that's what I'm going to do right now. At your... Mercy, at your sorority, at your sorority, did you guys think about how to encourage the right behavior and discourage the wrong behavior? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were things that we would do. You know, there were sanctions. You couldn't wear your letters if uh, you were engaged in uh, poor behavior off campus, and that was found out and brought back to the chapter. It's sort of about, I think one of your guests said this a bit earlier, it's about recognizing and identifying those things, those actions that you will and you will not tolerate. Because even if you're in letters or you're not in letters, people will recognize you as, oh, that person is a member of Sigma Gamma Authority Incorporated, that's my organization, or what organization, uh, whichever one uh, you're a part of. Um, but if I could, I just wanted to redirect this and bring it to uh, Connecticut. A situation like this has happened um, not even that long ago up at UConn, where a member of an organization, um, a white male, called a member of a historically black sorority, um, he used a racial epithet towards her, mm-hmm. and that situation is still playing itself out. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, your guests were talking about how the way that the university responds is is very important, because what it does is it sends messages to people what's okay, what's not okay, but more importantly, messages to the person that this situation affects and tells them how much we value uh, you, you here as a student, how much we value your opinions, your feelings, how safe you feel. Because I think these situations come down to how safe an individual may or may not feel on their campus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Definitely. Well, thanks for the call. I, I think that it's... Um, you know, I am curious, thinking as, as someone who has taught from time to time, you know, what is the proper response? I mean, do we think and, – and I was utterly horrified by what I saw. In fact, I thought I was going to be horrified and then I watched the video and it was even worse than yeah, I same, thought. That was exactly the way and, I felt. And, you know, there wa- who knows how many boys were on that bus, 20, 30. Um, is expulsion the thing to do? You know, I saw a response where uh, the person was saying that you've – You've taken them – when you expel, you've taken them outside of the realm where you could teach a lesson. Okay. So that could be an opportunity lost. So I'm not sure I'd be for expulsion, but I would be in the realm of of having some way to uh, educate, to have them understand that this is wrong, not just because you got caught, but because this is wrong. And And really what a a college campus should be about is thoughtful dialogue, right? Exchanges of ideas. And that's what – if if anything good can come from something this bad, it's and we're doing it now. It's going to hopefully open a conversation about yes. about race in our country and about and about feeling safe. That was what Mercy said made a great amount of sense. I, I really feel that way. Right, and often I think the biggest demon that we're dealing with here is ignorance. Mm-hmm. Right, that's yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> you wonder right. how yeah. many of these men in the fraternity. Uh, we actually don't know if they're African Americans in the fraternity. We don't know some of them may have been on sports teams. I don't doubt that some of them had black friends. But what's interesting was they were in this space where they thought no one's ever going to see this. No one's ever going to be hurt. And, you know, well, welcome to you know the social media culture. Uh, Joe, do we still have Joe on the line? We lost Joe. Pat, we have a call from Pat. How are you, Pat? Uh, hi, fine, thanks. Um, I 
I have to say, I was uh, a child of the 60s, and fraternities were anathema. Fraternities and sororities were anathema to me. My husband uh, in college uh, left in the fraternity for a semester and then quit in disgust. So um, we were quite dismayed. <laughs> We were quite dismayed when uh, our son, who's at a small Midwest liberal arts college, called us the end of first semester and said he would like to pledge a fraternity. Um, he got you, didn't he? <laughs> he knew how to rebel against mom and dad. We were, we were not happy about it, and we talked to him about it, and he explained um, that he had grown up being in orchestra and playing soccer, and he had decided in college not to be a music major and not to play varsity soccer, but he was used to having a group of kids and, in particular, a group of guys to hang out with, and he felt sort of lost, and he had met this group of guys who he really, really liked, and he felt it would be helpful. He made all sorts of promises to us up and down um, before we said okay. Um, I have, I never thought I'd be in the position of defending fraternities, I have to say, but I, I have been amazingly uh, surprised and pleased by his experience, and I would chalk it up, actually, to the culture that the college has created around fraternities. We have to go to break um, in a second. Where does he go to college? College in Ohio. Kenyon? Oh, my sister's alma mater. Okay, so so the, the takeaway is going to be that if you want a good, safe Greek experience, Kenyon okay. College in Gambier, Ohio. Oh, <laughs> so. And I would also say that Pat is a great parent who was, who gave the fraternity a great pledge. Well, yeah, there you go. Back to the parenting. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're that's gonna, it. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, afterwards, we're going to talk uh, on a lighter note about Tina Fey's new show. We'll be right back on the news. This is where the party ends. I'll just sit here wondering how you stand by your racist friend. I know politics for you, but I feel like a I'm Mark Oppenheimer sitting in for Colin McEnroe. We're live from New Haven today with The Nose, the Colin McEnroe Show's weekly cultural roundtable. Our Knights of the Roundtable today are Brian Slattery, arts editor of the New Haven Independent, Sophronia Scott, the novelist and essayist and faculty member for Regis University's Mile High MFA. There must be a lot of off-color jokes about that, Sophronia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think we're all – Let's just, them off. Let's Thank just you. Yeah. get Thanks that out there. I would love to join <laughs> that. If you call something the Mile High MFA, yeah. <clears throat> you're sort of asking what alternative credits one can get. Um, <laughs> And legendary radio personality and fraternity <laughs> president. Snowdrift jumper. Snowdrift jumper, Bruce Barber. Uh, we're taking your calls today. We're talking about fraternity culture. And I'll just tip my hand and say we're about to talk about the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Is it unbreakable? Unbeatable? It unbreakable. unbreakable. Tina Fey's new show on Netflix. Uh, we're taking your calls at 203-776-9677. That's 203-776-9677. Uh, while we were away, Colin asked us if we could come up with a good backstory for why this is called The Nose. You know, he just made it up out of thin air. But he did thought, he really? He did. But he thought it would be neat if we had some sort of story that he could tell people as kind of an elevator story when people say, <laughs> why is it called The Nose? He's never 
known what to tell them. So we like you to tweet in 140 characters who can come up with the best answer for why it's called the nose. You can tweet that to at WNPR Colin or just email him at Colin at WNPR.org and you know he'll he'll come back from his uh, his jaunt to uh, to Maui with uh, with some good stories. Um, Bruce, you were telling us a very moving story while we were off air about about your own fraternity afterlife after having received. Did you receive your your bachelor's degree? You I actually, did. You actually I just barely. You actually graduated, but <laughs> I was so close to not or being a member. It was very common. The five year club was. Uh, was I've very heard that thing. if you're life goal is to be a DJ. You actually don't need <laughs> a bachelor's degree. <laughs> well, actually, so just quickly, two two great things about my, my experience at uh, Theta Delta Chi at Hobart College yeah. was, number one, a fraternity brother of mine had a radio show and invited me to go down and visit him one time. And that literally, and then he said, go read this in that studio over there. And I read it. And um, actually, as soon as I looked up the first time, one of my fraternity brothers was mooning me through the glass. <laughs> and I started laughing. But that led to a, you know, what's been a yeah, it is, we, we were a classy bunch. <laughs> classy but bunch. Um, it led to a great career. And then the other thing was that um, uh, last summer, a very, very dear friend of mine was diagnosed with um, very bad cancer. And the, his first reaction was to call some of his very close friends and just talk about it and, you know, kind of let us know. And a bunch of us, I'd say five of us were like, we're coming to your house. He lives in New Jersey. We're just, we're going to come see you. He never got married. He's got a beautiful house. And we found ourselves sitting there till two o'clock in the morning, drinking beers, listening to the music we used to listen to. But at one point, it just kind of got quiet. And he said, you know, I just want to say that I love every one of you guys in this room. And I know for a fact that that never would have happened, you know, had we not been through all the stuff we were with, uh, we had gone through together. So, I mean, that to me was just this sense of these were, you know, four or five people that just formed these lifelong friendships in that environment of a fraternity in upstate New York. So that's it's an argument for it. I mean, it's it's also one of those stories that makes you think how rare it is to form those kind of close bonds later on in life. Right? Yeah. And, know. you know, we had we had some people in the fraternity who were doing bad things, you know, who, you know, but also people doing some wonderful things. As a matter of fact, one of my fraternity brothers is a guy named John Grotzinger. And uh, Gratz was a soccer player and, you know, could be a wild man. But John Gratzinger is now the lead geologist on the Mars mission. <laughs> I kid you not. Cool. And he got interested in geology up in the Finger Lakes and took that. to He worked in Woods Hole. And now he's... What became of the guy who mooned you on, during, during <laughs> the that's first a, radio? That was, that was Doug Birmingham. He went to Wall Street and made a fortune. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll call him during Pledge yeah. Week. So. But this goes back to something you were saying on your Facebook page, Mark, that, that when an organization has a sense of a bigger purpose... You know that that the behavior follows, and even if it's not apparent, it's there. You know, my pastor uh, told us about a fraternity that she visited as part of a program. You know, she had to go and give a talk, and she could see the board men in the audience, but she also saw a little boy. You know, and this was a mainly white fraternity and an African American child, and she was wondering why is this child with them, and she eventually learned that this was a little boy whose mother was a drug addict, and he would come hang out with the fraternity, and the boys would take care of him, make sure he got to school, they fed him when when his mother was unable to take care of him, so I think that that 
you know, we, we miss out on these moments of, of, you know, this is what an organization can do uh, because of bad behavior. But as you said, if we don't, if an organization doesn't lose sight of the bigger purpose of what we can do together. Right, because they say they're service organizations, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah. Um, the converse of that is I knew of one fraternity that adopted a dog and they never decided who was going to take care of the dog. No. The dog... The, the dog did not starve to death, but let's just say it was a very neglected dog until a woman who was a f- friendly with many of the brothers and would just come out and hang out with them realized, I better take care of the dog. I mean, she started coming by to walk the dog, feed the dog. It was kind of, it was kind of heartbreaking. It was sort of like Jeez. this collective neglect of the, of the dog. Brian Francis Slattery, uh, on a related note, you've been binge watching The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yes, what sadly. You, this is, <laughs> uh, I'm only through episode six. This is Tina Fey's first show since uh, the end of 30 Rock. Um, what uh, what do you like about it? What's held your attention? Um, I mean, I guess I guess first of all is that I've discovered that I'm sort of a sucker for Tina Fey's particular brand of comedy, right? Mm-hmm. Like she has this she has this really cool mix of what feels like sort of very old school, like almost vaudeville mm-hmm. qualities to her characters. You know, they're they're like you know in an, in an, in an age where people are constantly saying that they need, you'd have these fully developed characters she doesn't develop them at all like she makes them into these like wonderfully quirky caricatures and then uses them to be able like it's only because she creates these characters who can do this that they say these outrageous things and you can have them talk about things that you don't normally get to talk about and it, like she creates this kind of amazing safe space to talk about some like very difficult things you know, and to have you laugh at them, which is pretty amazing. Um, but the part that I, the part that I particularly like about about Kimmy Schmidt, which I like more than I liked Thirty Rock, um, is that uh, it was it was cool to see what she does when she's not worried about ratings. You know, when she's not worried or, or network censors. Mm. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like both <laughs> both sides of that. Like when she's when she's not worried about like you know, getting an audience every week like that. And at the same time, not having to worry. Cause like some of the things that are on there are like truly appalling. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it was, it's really great. I mean, and it, like as, as someone who sort of enjoys getting his buttons pushed, you know, like she's, she creates some, some pretty, you know, ripe things on that show that, that I thought, you know, this would never, we would never be able to see this if you, it was on NBC. You didn't think there was going to be another Asian American char- male character named Dong since was it Better Off Dead? <laughs> it the, was uh, sixteen. Sixteen candles. Yeah, sixteen candles. Since Long Duck Dong, right? Long Duck Dong, and then oddly, he's goodness, he's, he's possibly are, the most well developed character on the show. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I was thinking. So, I mean, this is a show that has an Asian American character named Dong um, that has a. A heavy set African American gay man who is gayer and heavy setter and African Americaner than just about anyone on TV, <laughs> and you know we're all laughing along with that. Uh, does she have permission because she's so darn funny? Uh, does she have permission because Netflix? Does she have permission because she she seems to be because the most clueless and silly of the characters is the white girl from from Indiana. Ponder that while I remind our listeners that we want your opinions too. We're at 203-776-9677. Yeah, I think she's just that good. I just <laughs> think she's just she's one of the most brilliant women, I think. I've I've read her book. Did you read her book? I haven't. Yeah. I haven't, Bo- but Bo- I sure Bossy want pants. to. Bossy, Bossy I mean, pants. It was just terrific. I mean, part of it is that she's definitely an equal opportunity stereotyper, right? There's yeah. it's not you know you don't feel like any particular group is being singled out for for the like stupid things that they do or that certain individuals in them do you know it's like she's she's very good at constructing this this like 
even playing fields. The other know, thing for, I think for is, ridiculous things. The other thing I think is great that that you alluded to is the fact that we're really in an age where this kind of new way of ex- expression through these shows, when you have a Netflix or now, I think Yahoo is paying to you know, and they release the whole series all at once. I'm watching. I'm I'm immersed in House of Cards. <laughs> The, uh, the the latest season, I, which of I that. can't watch because it's too bleak. <laughs> it's pretty bleak. <laughs> it, yeah. it haunts my. My wife likes it. I can't watch it. It haunts my. I, I lie awake at night muttering to myself about it as I try to fall asleep because it's too bleak. Well, it it, it I I find that to be true. But I think what's so interesting is that just in in storytelling is that you can just get this arc going where you can watch a little bit of it and then you stop and then sometimes I'll do two episodes and then half of one. And then I find I'm, like, dreaming of the characters and, you know, it's wild. Well, you know, Mark, I would say that Tina Fey can get away with it because – not because she's funny, but because it's not just cartoon. It's not just stereotype. She's using these pieces to say something very smart about the way we are, about race and about the way our society works. And it's not necessarily new, Bruce, because we had – the, we grew up with the most cartoonish, racist character of our time in Archie Bunker and All in the Family. Mm. And this is what TV used to be. It used to be yeah. um, smart. Because <laughs> that was a smart show. It, that was a huge yeah. smart, really smart show. Well, she, yeah. like, she, reminds me of, she actually reminds me of like Mel Brooks when he was sort of really at his best, like with Blazing Saddles, where you say mm-hmm. – I mean you look at Blazing Saddles now and say there's no way a major studio would ever – ever make this movie again like it's just too it's too true (laughs) but tina fey is doing something like that you know where she just she just goes right in there it actually makes me think very little of the uh, you know colin did a show not long ago about the sitcom i mean it was a few weeks back and um and you know is it is it gone is it coming back is it you know is it gone forever and i was thinking i loved sitcoms when i was eight and it was it was the thursday night line you had the cosby show and the family ties and the cheers and i will always love those shows but they were actually pretty mediocre compared to a lot of what we're doing now, right? Like yeah. none of them was as smart as Archie Bunker as, – as what Norman Lear was doing 10 years before hmm. that. Right? Mm-hmm. right. And and we seem to be getting – the in, the intelligent people, the, the good writers are going back into TV. That's exactly right. And I, and I think – and a lot of actors that would never have done television before are doing TV now. Yeah, and I feel as though – the the Kimmy Schmidt show is still finding its footing. You know, it's only mm-hmm. been what one season, and I have you watched have, the whole. Have you gone all th- all through it? No, not all the way. Not through all, it yet. Okay. But but I have. You know, I can see, see the trajectory, and I'm hoping that it's going to. You know, that the writers will find their footing, and it's going to really um, get even better and even smarter. I, I I think it. Well, I can't. I'm going to go home and see tonight when yeah. I probably won't sleep at all. We have John <laughs> on the line. John, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you guys? Good, good. What's up? I just wanted to tell you, uh, my son introduced me to the show a couple of days ago, and all of his fraternities watching. Until it, I, I think. cry. You laughed till you it, cried. I'm sorry. You laughed till you cried. You said. Yeah, all the characters are really, really funny, and one of the things you guys haven't mentioned is considering everything Kimmy's been through to be as normal, really, and unthinkable, and you know, talk about diversity. Or with what she's gone through with this guy in this cult, uh, to come through with that unbreakable um, optimism. You, you, I mean, I, I come from a childhood where there was myriad types of abuse, and for her to grow up and be this 
saccharine sweet, but it's so, she's so genuine. And then to have her playoff Titus, who every time he opens his mouth, I have to hold back from laughing. <laughs> I think it's just brilliant. I, and never mind the theme song. I have it on my phone and I listen to it. <laughs> I just put that on and and we should give we should women being so strong. You should set up the premise for the show though, because I had I haven't seen it, but I read about oh, it. Oh, bad radio host Oppenheimer. So she's <laughs> she's in a cult. She's held underground for fifteen years. And then um, a SWAT team comes in and arrests the cult leader, and they they release these four women who have not been out above, above ground, ground since you know 1999. And one of them decides to take. Oh, she goes to the Today Show. They do a spot on the Today Show on okay. the the mole women, and Matt Lauer interviews her. And then she says, "Well, shoot, I'm staying in New York City. This is better. <laughs> yes. This is better than the bunker, and it's better than the town I came from." Oh, it sounds so and good. So it's, and it's it's uh, it's Ellie Kemper, who's a very 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 funny. Uh, Funny actress, and she was she was on The Office, which I think was an overrated show. I'm gonna I'm gonna get who was she on The Office? One of the overrated people on the okay. who was she on The Office? Does anyone know? <laughs> I love The Office. I know she's she's red she's young and red haired and fresh faced. Oh, I know, I know. Who you you're know exactly about. Yes, who she was, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, she's great. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the connections are all. Wow. The synapses I'm are all firing. Yeah. Now my weekends yeah, all. But shot. the caller makes a good point in that you know she has this fresh energy because you know she does not feel like a victim. She does not want to be seen as a victim. And she's just so happy to be out in the world. It infects everyone. You know, there's this point where this guy is jogging in Central Park and she runs up next to him and says, we're running, we're all running. And it's so joyous, you know. And and that to me, that's another way that the show is very smart because we've forgotten that that's, that is a plausible response to adversity, right? That we can choose to be a victim and down and this is what happened to me. But we can also choose to say, I survived, you know, and she does that again and again. And every time she hits a bad point that because bad things happen to her in New York City, right? She realizes, well, wait, I survived being in this hole. You know, she said the worst has already happened. (laughs) Everything else is. And everyone who who meets her wants to know was there weird sexual stuff down in the hole. And at one point she (laughs) she sort of stops someone in their tracks. is like, yeah, there was weird sex stuff. But anyway, I'm not talking about that. Like, what do you mean? Was there? Of course there was. Why else would he have founded a cult and kidnapped four young women? But we're not going to talk about that. And and, you know, it's not that it's not that that they don't admit that there's this sort of undercurrent. I mean, she's been tortured essentially, but she is, the character is one whose temperament is going to take her into the great unknown. And it also occurs to me that um, one reason the show has some liberties with other kinds of characters is it begins with the greatest Caucasian stock character, which is the wingnut cult leader, right? I mean, you know how they say that, you know, black people never go on binge killings, but white people do, right? It's like the the craziest people, the Charles Manson seem to be like, you know, mangy haired white men. And it begins with that premise, which is she has been kidnapped and tortured by a crazy Midwestern white guy, right? The kind of person who's not on Homeland Security's list, but ought to be. And, but except he's within our own borders. And then she goes to New York where, you know, okay, there's Asians and there's blacks and there's gays and there's, but you know, she's, she's seen it. You know, she's been in the belly of the beast. I'm, so. I'm literally ready to leave now to go watch it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stream yeah. it on my phone this yeah. moment. All right. Well, we have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to have our endorsements and maybe time for a couple more of your calls. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is The Colin McEnroe Show.
Today's show was produced by Mark Oppenheimer, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kion Wolf, with huge thanks to Jonathan McNichol for running the board in New Haven. Our intern is Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Faith Middleton. For articles, show pages, and photos, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, Oppie is back with a show about the joys and challenges of being a pediatrician. And now, back to the nose. None of you knew that I was also a pediatrician, did you? Spare time, <laughs> night work. We're actually going to have credentialed pediatricians on. It is true that I play a pediatrician at home, not infrequently. <laughs> We're taking your calls. Uh, I'm Mark Oppenheimer sitting in for Colin McEnroe on The Nose, and my nasal guests are Brian Slattery, arts editor of the New Haven Independent, Sophronia Scott, a former editor at People Magazine, which we didn't even get to talk about, but I learned to read on my mama's lap with People Magazine. She's a novelist, essayist, and faculty member for Regis University's well-named Mile High MFA (laughs) program, (laughs) and Bruce Tiki Barber, uh, legendary local radio personality. Um, Please call us, 203-776-9677. We're going to get to our endorsements in a moment. But before we do, Yik Yak. Never. I've never seen it. You've never seen it? Never seen it. Yik Yak, this new app that only broadcasts within 1.5 miles of where your phone is. It's anonymous, and it lets you say anything you want about people. So it's become the social app of choice for people who want to gossip about the lecturer standing in front of them in college. And it's been banned from some campuses. Slattery, what can we do about Yik Yak? Oh, my God. I mean, it, is it, that <laughs> Does it seems... make you so glad you graduated 20 years ago? I mean, <laughs> so many things make me so... I mean, YouTube alone <laughs> makes me so glad that... But the... Um, I, you know, I, I feel like Yik Yak is, again, like one of those... It's one of those little things that's part of a bigger thing, right? Like, it's the whole internet anonymity thing, which has been around for as long as the internet's been public. You know, the, the problem of like... Since it moved away from the Defense Department. Yeah, exactly. DARPA net. DARPA should never have let it out of the can. You know, it just it should never have happened. But the... the um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's that same thing of like, it's amazing what people are willing to say when they don't have to use their real name, right? Right. And it's, and it's like... The idea that the idea that anything else would happen, but what happened—it's not unlike is, the University of Oklahoma yeah. stuff in the sense I was that, just thinking yeah, that when people think that nobody will ever see them, that nobody's watching except right. your your bosom buddies, your your panhellenic brothers, they will behave in ways that they that I think they wouldn't otherwise. And absolutely yeah, right. Well, I I mean I did an interesting test case of this at one point where I did like a blog post for Amazon, and um. The you know somebody sort of came at me with this like ridiculous internet handle attached to their comment, and I you know I responded civilly, but kind of said like you know we can talk about this when you use your real name. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's I'm not going to have a fight with whoever the heck you say you are. I will tweet at you people know. who have attacked things I've written. I'll say why don't we get offline? I'll email you and give me your phone number and we'll talk. Yeah, but but the thing it is like people so, out. Yeah. but this person this person like to their credit actually responded with their real name, and we had like a much more civil conversation right but it is there is something very interesting about the idea that as soon as you take your name away some people obviously not everybody but it's some some people feel very free to suddenly say some pretty horrendous things yeah. and know. what bugs me about it is that means that they know the difference 
they know better. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. so what, what is that about? You know, do we, we no longer know how to reach for our better angels, you know, that, that that's somehow okay. And I, I find that troublesome. I'm like Kimmy Schmidt in that way. I'm just bewildered <laughs> and abhorred by, by bad behavior. I'm just shocked by it. I will sometimes find that online and both, both anonymously, but also just in the sort of the space of things like Twitter, where people feel that they're not accountable, that people whom I actually know to be very polite, decent people who would not let their children be rude will be rude. <laughs> they will be snide and I will sometimes write back to them and say, would you, how would you feel if, you're, if your son came home and said someone said that to him on the playground? You'd, mar- you'd march in to the principal and say, you know, so it, it's, it's very interesting. We, it actually makes you realize how unstable our morality is, right? Yeah. Well, and it, it begs the question, does now the fact that, that everybody's got a camera in their pocket and can record stuff, does, is, is this now going to hold us maybe to a higher I standard? always thought that the one good use for Google Glass was if, it, if you could turn it on, it would always record the last hour of your life, that people would be afraid to be cruel to each other. If we're all wearing Google Glass, this is a little silly, but if we're all wearing it and it all captured kind of a refreshable tape loop of maybe the last 20 minutes or hour or whatever, who would ever mug you? Who would ever hurl a racial epithet if they knew? Well, and now they're using the calls for police departments to use body cams uh, for the same reason. For the same reason. Uh, We have a call. Lindsay, are you there? Hey, I'm here. We don't have a lot of time. So, Lindsay, I want to hear what you have to say, but uh, we've got to hurry. Okay, I'll try to be quick. So no, I was just drawing a connection between the beginning of the show and the end of the show. Um, you know, I joined a story as well, and part of the goal of pledging is to kind of put these kids through the ringer so that we experience some hardship in life where most likely being college kids have lived in the Peaceful Valley. So you kind of create all this drama and all these problems through the course of pledging, and then um, you, you grow the bond and come out on the other side, hopefully as more closer wonderful human beings and having lovely friendships. But towards the end of the show, talking about Kimmy, like this girl didn't need to pledge a sorority. She really went through the... <laughs> you, okay, Lindsay, I'm going to stop if you there because... That and come out on the other side, we'd be much happier. I, we all need 15 years in, as a mole woman? Why not? <laughs> okay. That is brilliant. I'm going to stop you there because nobody's ever tied the beginning of the show and the end of the show together better that was real. than that. That actually <laughs> that she has epic. been hazed for 15 years yeah. by a cult yeah. leader. <laughs> Bruce Barber, what are your endorsements for the week? Um, I have uh, – my endorsement is a local author. I am uh, – I'm having a big love affair with the city of New Haven. I just – I've been living in New Haven for and about five you, years. Bruce. Now, and I've just finished Colin Kaplan's book that is a tour of the neighborhoods, uh-huh. um, and I've just started on his book about Westville, and I've downloaded them both from the uh, iBook store and read them on my phone. So uh, Colin Kaplan's books on New Haven and Westville. Colin Kaplan's books. Brian Francis Slattery the first. Yeah, my endorsement's a book, too. Um, I'm reading a a very cool book called um, Who Fears Death by Nnedi Okorafor. And it's the sort of, if you ever wondered what a fantasy novel would look like if it's set in Nigeria, here's a possible answer. And it is it is very neat. It is very neat. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Nnedi, spell that last one for us for people who want to find it. Yeah, right. Her first name is N-N-E-D-I. And then, oh boy, here we go. Um, Okorafor. Okorafor is, yeah. It's Okorafor called Okorafor. Is, okay, exactly. O-K-O-F- uh-oh. R-A-F-O-R. Yes. There we Thank go. Thank you. Nnedi Okorafor. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll get that up on the website on, on, at WNPR.org. Yeah. Sophronia, some endorsements for us? Yes. I have two books for you, both local authors. I wanted to promote my 
fellow Connecticut women. Uh, the first is the new novel by Rachel Bash, and that's spelled B-A-S as in Sam C-H. It's called The Listener, and it's about a middle-aged psychologist working with a young man who is transgendered. And it's touching and comforting and funny in a way that you want a satisfying weekend read to be. And uh, Rachel is just an excellent wordsmith, so I recommend that. The other is called The Politics of Promotion, and it's by Bonnie Marcus. And she is an executive coach here in Connecticut. And it's all about how high-achieving women can get ahead and stay ahead. Uh, Women who think that working hard will get you the promotion and raise when that's just not the way the corporate world works, and Bonnie will tell them how to navigate that. So can you, not to dim her sails, but can you give us a brief capsule, 20 seconds on, well, what do you have to, if it's not that, <laughs> it's not working hard to be good at no, your job. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's, it's about um, getting to know the right people, understanding how you can help them in their projects. And if you can help them and, and pump up their profile, then they will um, um, help you. Okay. Uh, I have two endorsements. Uh, The first is Ghetto Side by Jill Leovy. That's L-E-O-V-Y, Levy with an O. And it's um, Ghetto Side. It's a book about homicide investigations in Watts in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's extraordinary. She follows the the homicide cops as they try to solve a murder. And it's really about um, black men killing black men and why she believes that that community needs more policing, not less. She says they don't close enough cases, that if murderers thought that one, if they think there's only a 40 percent chance they'll ever be prosecuted, they'll do it. But if it's, if you get a clearance rate up at 60 or 70 percent, all of a sudden the crimes go way down. So it's, mm. it's her argument for more policing. But it's just very, very gripping. And the other is a memoir called All Who Go Do Not Return by Shulam Dean, D-E-E-N. And it's um, it's about a guy who escaped from an ultra-Orthodox community the, in New Square, New York, which is so ultra-Orthodox, it makes ultra-Orthodox look not at all orthodox. Uh, the last thing I'm going to say <laughs> is that I'm going to be speaking tomorrow night at Madison Art Cinemas after a screening of Get uh, at 7.40 p.m. Arnold Gorlick is going to have me in to talk about it, so I have to endorse that as well. Thanks for being with us. I'm Mark Oppenheimer pretending to be Colin McEnroe. This has been The Colin McEnroe Show. Yeah, 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 yeah.